So Money episode 1291, a behind the scenes look of this year's UN Climate Change Conference with Katie Collins, European correspondent at CNET. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It was not announced beforehand. It was just, it was a very sudden thing. Everyone was running to get seats in this press conference and nobody knew exactly what was going on except, you know, it, it was listed as John Kerry's going to speak and then they brought a Chinese flag up on the stage. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are revisiting the cost of climate change today. I thought it would be interesting to have on the show my colleague at CNET, Katie Collins, who is based in the UK and was our correspondent at the recent UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. This is the UN Climate Summit. It was in its 26th year this year. It was held in Glasgow, Scotland. It's a gathering of heads of state, and world leaders, as well as environmental groups, activists. She gives us the play-by-play, including some of the surprising takeaways from this year's conference, a look at the activists' role, their strong messages urging swift climate action, and how some of the decisions made at this conference will be showing up in our daily lives. Here's Katie Collins. Katie Collins, my compadre, Uh, On the other side of the pond, welcome to the show, Senior European Correspondent for CNET. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You have been very busy. Uh, as, as everybody knows on the show at CNET, we dedicated a lot of coverage to recently to the cost of climate change in tandem with the COP26 UN conference that was focused on climate. You were our representative at the conference, two-week-long conference in Glasgow, Scotland. So I thought now that you have sort of, you've caught your breath, you've, you've come back to your day-to-day, uh, you've written so much great content for uh, for the site. I encourage everybody to go to cnet.com and search for Katie Collins. Just do a big download because it's very important, some of the insights that you walked away with. Um, some insights that maybe as everyday, in our everyday lives, we may not recognize or see, but I think eventually uh, some of these agreements, some of these decisions, some of these insights will uh, start showing up more in our day-to-day. So anyway, all this to say, we're so grateful to have you. Tell us about one, what is COP26? A lot of us are hearing more and more about this annual UN summit of leaders, but also of of all sorts of people that have a stake and have a voice at the table for uh, issues concerning climate change and climate adaption. Uh, But what is it and um, what is the significance? Yeah, so um, the UN Climate Summit, COP26, as it was this year, um, is a kind of, it's a meeting of all of the countries from around the world who are invested in the future of our planet and protecting the future of our planet, fighting climate change. Um, And it consists of a kind of a number of different stakeholders that come together. So, you know, you have um, world leaders and dignitaries from all of these countries um, all coming um, this year. It was obviously to Glasgow in Scotland. Um, And then you have um, 
from each of the countries, you also have a team of negotiators as well, um, who are experts in climate policy and kind of come together to, um, you know, talk to each other and work out the the details of how, you know, how they're going to meet their shared, what their shared goals should be and how they're going to meet them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have a bunch of other people who who come along to the summit who are kind of known as observers. um, And these can be people from NGOs, non-governmental organizations, um, and uh, you know, climate activists. They can be um, members of uh, companies, um, experts, academics. Um, there are all sorts of people that end up coming to COP26. Um, and it's the, the idea is that they all kind of try and figure out what the best direction is um, to go in order to protect the future of the earth and um you know try, it's 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 a really it's a it's pretty much the only thing that we have as well um to work together um which right. is why it's so important because you know it's it provides a framework for the whole of the world to say you know what are we going to do about this problem that affects all of us um right yeah I thought it was interesting. This is the 26th year. So, you know, although you could argue, many argue that we've been slow to recognize and commit to this idea of like the world's getting hotter. We need to really put in um, some uh, new infrastructure changes that that's a little too late, but yeah, we're working on them. But 26 years ago, the UN decided to meet for this very purpose. So Mm -hmm. this is not something that is that the world has only just recognized is problematic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've had scientists sounding the alarm bells for a really, really long time now about this. Um, And it was kind of a niche concern back in the day. But, you know, we can see just from this year, just the amount of news that there's been about around COP26, the way it's dominated our conversations um, in a way that it just hasn't in the past, even five years ago. And when or six six years ago, when the Paris Agreement was drawn up, you know, I think people have heard of the Paris Agreement. But I mean, was there I don't think that there was a really big kind of uh, understanding even in the news back then. Um, And it just shows that this is I mean, it's a growing topic of concern because, you know, as we learned from the IPCC report earlier this year, um, you know, our time is really running out in order to make the changes that we need to make. Um, if we're going to protect the future of our planet. So I think the fact that it dominates so many of our conversations in the news agenda now is a sign really of how urgent this is. Um, and, um, you know, it's also, there's also been a huge change in kind of the recognition of, um, you know, there was a time when the science was, it was there, but people were still questioning it. People didn't know whether mm-hmm. to believe it. And, you know, we've moved the conversation on so much now that there's this really joint recognition from everyone that we cannot continue like this and we need to make changes. Right. You talk about the stakeholders that were there. I thought what was interesting, and you wrote about this, was that fossil fuel companies had a very large presence at the conference. Mixed feelings about that. Uh, On the one hand, we want them there because we want them to take part in this movement. They are they play a vital role. But we also know, as you reported, that um, select fossil fuel companies worked very hard to conceal the evidence of, of mm. climate change. It didn't work to their benefit, right? Mm. Um, so what was the what was that the temperature on yeah. uh, the fossil fuel company presence at, at the conference and, and what are your takeaways on that? I mean, a lot of people, like the general conversation was the day that Global Witness, who did the research into this, released their report and they they said that, oh, there are 503 
representatives of the oil and gas industry at COP26, which cumulatively was bigger than any country's national delegation. Um, and I would say that the feeling and the kind of the conversation was one of outrage, to be honest, um, you know, because there are so many people that come that come to COP26 to, you know, move this agenda forward and who come and it's their life's work and they care so deeply about it. And the feeling that, you know, that, that these um, that these companies were being allowed to have a presence in these conversations um, was is one of real frustration just because, you know, for so long, um, you know, they they were complicit in a lot of the climate change denial that we saw in the early days of, you know, these conversations. Um, and, you know, they their interests don't tend to be aligned with the interests of, you know, of COP26 and of the, um, you know, of the global effort to try and wean ourselves off the very products that they are trying to sell to us. So, so were they trying to uh, divert the conversations? What were their, what was their goal? I mean, it's very hard to say because, you know, these, it's not terribly, it was, it's, there's a, there's not a lot of transparency when it comes to working out necessarily who those, um, who those delegates are and why, who they, who they're there with and who's brought them along and, um, so it's really hard to say, you know, what they were doing there, what their role was there. But, you know, we know that the amount of money that uh, gas and oil companies put into lobbying generally and right. pushing their interests forward um, is, you know, we know it's huge and we know that their influence is massive. Um, and so the likelihood is that they were there in order to represent their own interests as in, mm. part of the negotiations. And a lot of people felt very frustrated by that. On the flip side, there was some good news out of the conference, the, the COP26 climate agreement. Tell us a little bit about the details of this. Many countries signed it. What does it signify and how might everyday people feel the effects of this? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there were almost 200 countries that kind of came together right at the end of the summit. And, you know, the summit was supposed to finish on the Friday. And as often happens with these things, the negotiations kind of roll on over into the Saturday. In the past, they've rolled on over to the following Tuesday. So I think everyone was quite relieved when they, you know, managed to reach a conclusion on the Saturday night. Um, but this was the Glasgow Climate Pact, um, as it's um, being called. And it's basically a kind of um, an agreement that they are going to, um, you know, reaffirming their, the country's commitment to keep the um, Paris Climate Accords alive. Um, uh, there are a, a few kind of key uh, things that we're going to see in there. They are, there are the, um, there's the language that we're going to phase out coal power, which is, you know, it's, there are mixed feelings about this because it's the first, first time we've seen the mention of, you know, coal power being phased out um, and, you know, a commitment from all countries to come together and do that. Um, you know, a lot of people are frustrated because originally the language said that we were going to phase down, sorry, we were going to phase out coal power and it's been changed to phase down. So that was, um, you know, there are mixed feelings about that. Um, you know, there are some mentions in there um, that next year at the, at the climate summit, that there's going to be a real focus on um, putting in place a loss and damage mechanism. And this is, you know, really where the finance comes in, because there are a lot of, a lot of the countries out there um, 
who are already feeling the impacts of climate change every single day in their lives. They're saying, you know, we don't need money to adapt and mitigate for future, you know, to avoid future problems. We're experiencing them now and we didn't cause them. You know, the, the you know, the general consensus is the developed countries in the world caused, you know, are responsible for all of the changes that we're seeing. Those you know, people in developing countries in the global south are already losing their homes, their livelihoods. They need that. They need loss and damage money, their reparations, basically, in order to help them survive right now. Um, and that's going to be a really that there was language that was put into the agreement that that's going to be really high up on the agenda next year. Again, there's some frustration about that because you know we're there a lot of the climate activists were saying this needs to happen now. You know, a year is people are already losing their homes and their, you know, their lives as well. Um, but, you know, that's going to be a really big um, a thing that we're going to expect to see uh, being part of the conversation over the next year, especially. That's so important. One of the predictions, I wrote a piece about, you know, predictions of of where climate will lead us uh, financially as, you know, from a micro and macro level. And, and one of them was the widening wealth gap. Mm-hmm. And to your point, it's already happening where the, um, the choices of the more developed countries to continue using fossil fuels is really, you know, the burden mostly is now on these more um, smaller, poorer countries. It's it's good to know that we're recognizing that at least. And, mm. and you know, you bring up an interesting point about, you know, Greta Thunberg and, and you wrote actually a piece about how there was this wonderful presence of youthful, female, indigenous activists at the conference. However, their voices weren't overarching. But do you see that increasing over the years? And I mean, that was sort of hopeful for me reading that, although I would have liked for them to have more of a a role and presence um, and to be taken more seriously, frankly, now. But I feel like that's only going to intensify Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that that really, you know, one of my big takeaways from actually going to COP26 and being there on the ground was I was really heartened by the work that they were doing and, you know, seeing their impact. Um, And, you know, I almost felt at times like there were two events going on in the city. You know, there was this internal event that was locked away behind fences and security and, you know, takes you half an hour to get in there because you have to walk through all of these security things and um, there are dignitaries and very important people. And then there's outside of the summit, there were so many events going on around the city. You know, the the climate justice movement from all over the world kind of came to Glasgow and gathered even, you know, a lot of people were both inside and outside. They attended some things in the inside uh, and inside the summit and then also outside. But there were, you know, these, especially I think um, the young women um, coming from indigenous communities, coming from countries in the global south, coming from Africa, Latin America, Asia, and just seeing them all kind of come together. And, you know, they they really are not only, um, not only do they have, are they so well-informed and well-educated, but you see other people within the movement pointing to them as their leaders. They're saying, and it's very rare to find that, to find, to be in a situation where, you know, even, you know, the kind of old men around them are pointing to the young women and saying, these are our leaders, listen to them. They know, they understand. Um, and I, I also feel like there's a lot of pressure on them because, 
you know, they're so young and if they find it very overwhelming at times, but, you know, they know what needs to be done. And I think that there's, there is recognition of that as well from our world leaders. They, mm-hmm. they platformed their voices on the first few days of the, of the climate summit. You know, they gave them the opportunity to, to be on stage and speak to, uh, speak to the world leaders and address them all, which was amazing. And hearing what they had to say was amazing. But they feel frustrated because they are not being allowed into the negotiations. They're not able to go and say, this is impacting me. This is tearing my community apart. I'm scared for my future. You know, I've, I'm seeing my potential livelihood disappear. Um, you know, I've lost my home or, and, you know, they're not able to go in there and actually make the difference that they want to make, which is so frustrating for them. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of, it's interesting to see the kind of tension between, you know, what they are, the, the way that they are being sort of, they're having a lot of lip service paid to their efforts, but are they being given the power that they need really? Right. And the, I think the answer is no, but hopefully we're going to see that change because, you know, the amount of people that came out, not just in Glasgow, not just in the rest of the UK, but there were protests around the world during COP26. Um, and, you know, they they were the ones leading that and their power is growing. And it's amazing to see that movement kind of come into its own. Perhaps uh, in another surprise move, uh, there was the China-US-Glasgow Declaration on Enhancing Climate Action. It's a mouthful. Uh, but okay. I think um, this is... This was maybe perhaps something no one expected going in. Mm. I mean, given that China and the U.S. have tense relations and the chief negotiator for China, you wrote, he said that when it comes to climate change, there is more agreement between China and the U.S. than divergence. Mm. Uh, Tell us how that was received at the conference. Yeah. So this was a big surprise, even minutes before. You know, we were. I was. I was in the press conference with um, John Kerry and his um, chief negotiator, his counterpart, um, China's chief negotiator, and the. You know, everyone was. It was. It was not announced beforehand. It was just. It was a very sudden thing. Everyone was running to get seats in this press conference, and nobody knew exactly what was going on. Except, you know, there was listed as John Kerry's going to speak, and then they brought a Chinese flag up on the stage, and. You know, it'd been a really, it'd been quite tense that week already because, you know, uh, President Biden had been at COP26 and he had, you know, blasted China, um, China's president for not coming along um, and for not playing playing a part in the negotiations closely enough. But I think what we've seen here is actually John Kerry has been working all this year very quietly behind the scenes with China's chief negotiator and they are on the same page and they have found common ground. Um, and this has actually been, you know, it's been several months in the making. It wasn't just something that happened solely at COP26. But they came together and they announced this agreement that's going to see them work together um, to try and achieve the targets that are set out in the Paris Agreement, um, which is incredibly hopeful. Um, you know, we are, they, they're going to work together on a number of different issues. Um, I think they're going to work together on temperature goals, financing. Um, they're going to form a working group and they'll regularly meet and discuss kind of different climate actions, um, address clean energy, coal, methane and deforestation. And, you know, it's it was it was a surprise and everyone was very shocked and very pleased, I think, um, you know, to see these two superpowers come together because as well, you know, China and U.S., the U.S. were instrumental 
in getting the Paris Agreement off the ground in the first place. You know, those two big superpowers coming on board were, were really instrumental to getting all of the other countries to, to kind of, you know, say, yes, we'll go along with this. Obviously, the US had a bit of a blip um, during President Trump's um, lead, uh, presidency when um, the US temporarily withdrew from the Paris Agreement. And the US has come back to COP26 this year, actually kind of, you know, hoping to... Um, restore its reputation as a climate leader, very much so. Hmm. This is so political, right? This is, uh, I mean, I'm sure you came in with your own questions at the conference. Some of them may have been answered, but as you exited, what were you left still pondering? And what are the stories that you think as journalists, we should be continuing to follow the the types of questions we should be asking all the stakeholders um, so that we can do our part in propelling this forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think you hear, if you listen too much to what the politicians say about COP26, you're only going to get one side of the story. You know, they came into this summit wanting it to be already presenting it as a success. You know, they their story from the beginning was this is a success. It's going to be successful, and then at the end they were like, "Well, it's been a success." Um, and you know, they they want to appear like they're in control and like they're doing enough. Um, actually, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to interrogate that and question that when they say that, because you know, and I think that the key thing here is paying attention to what's happening in the climate justice movement and looking at the issues that they're raising about what's happening. Um, you know, to homes, to their homes in the Amazon, what's happening, you know, to communities in Africa, Um, you know, and I think that the big question for me over the next year, I already mentioned loss and damage, it's going to be, you know, are countries, you know, both both the UK and the US have recognised, yes, we have been historic uh, polluters, and we have caused, you know, we've disproportionately compared to a lot of other countries out there, we are responsible for the effects that we're now seeing of, of the climate crisis. Are they actually going to deliver the money? Um, and, you know, this is actually something that Greta Thunberg said in her in her speech. And a lot of the other young climate activists, you know, they said, show us the money, you know. Mm-hmm. They, and, and I think that, you know, our, what, what our questions should be is, are our countries delivering on the promises that they've made because it's all very well we can't say yet whether or not Glasgow is a success because we haven't seen whether our our governments are fulfilling those promises that they signed up to you know we need to be questioning are they fulfilling those financial commitments that they've made are they you know are they saying that we should phase out fossil fuels but actually they're drilling for more oil and they're signing off on more projects to dig for fossil fuels you know and I think that being, you know, being prepared to question, being, go. I think seeking out as well, seek out those young activists, go and hear what they have to say, um, because it's so powerful and um, so enlightening. And, you know, you'll hear a totally different story to the story that you hear when you just listen to politicians. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we sort of brand this as an environmental issue, but it's political, it's financial, I thought it was interesting too. You noticed um, there was some tech presence at the conference. The Googles, the Apples, um, Bill Gates was there. Jeff Bezos. These giant companies, which 
basically dominate the, the stock market at this point, can do a lot to help or hinder this movement. What were they representing there? What was the messaging? I think it's really interesting because I think that the when it comes to fighting climate change, the tech companies have kind of been a lot more on the ball than a lot of other big industries out there. You know, we have huge polluting industries like the fashion industry, the oil and gas industry is obviously one. The tech, the big tech companies have been very good about, you know, looking at their supply chains, looking at their data centers, ensuring that they're not making the problem worse. Um, but, you know, we also have to take their presence at these things with a pinch of salt. You know, are they there for, you know, to try and, you know, toot their own horn and <laughs> boast about their, their their climate presence? Are they there to learn? Are they there to, and, and actually, you know, I think it was, for me, it was definitely a mixture. You know, the, a, lot, a lot of the companies had quite a quiet presence there. So, um, you know, Facebook and Google were there. Apple was there. And, you know, they were, they didn't make a big thing about it. They were, um, you know, I, I think that they were there to, you know, ensure that they were being part of those big conversations. Um, Facebook as well really sees its role um, as in, you know, when it comes to climate change as being able to, you know, platform activists and important voices and important conversations. You know, they have a, a different struggle on their hands that we don't really have time to go into today about whether they're doing that and then whether they're allowing misinformation to spread as well. Um, but they, you know, they they were generally there, I think, to to learn, um, to talk to people, to see what was important to people. But there were, I think, you know, I think there was quite a lot of outrage that, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates show, showed up on their private jets and flew in right. and, you know, took to the stage and and then flew out again. And, you know, there's been, especially when it comes to Amazon and the role that it's played in the climate crisis, um, you know, I think a lot of people were very frustrated to see Jeff Bezos being given a platform. You know, they were mm -hmm. saying, when I spoke to the activists, they were saying, it's great that he's here, but he should have come to listen and come to talk, you know, come to talk with us and to, to rather than take the stage. And he made an announcement about, you know, apparently going to space and seeing the earth from the edge of space had given him a new perspective on, um, on how we need to save the earth. Uh, and <laughs> you didn't have to leave the earth to figure that out, Mr. Bezos. Well, yeah, the evidence is right before us. <laughs> Um, and he kind of he's got his Bezos Earth Earth Fund, and he committed an extra two billion dollars while nice. he was while he was there, which is you know obviously very welcome. But you know they were I think that people's message for him was you know maybe kind of check what's going on at home before you go around say you know donating money and pointing fingers yeah. you know tr treat because I think as well the climate justice movement is very intersectional it looks at how workers are treated how you know people who are living in you know um uh, different areas of the world are treated and when it comes to workers rights and people's um ability to um you know to kind of lift themselves out of poverty and uh you know I don't think people felt like Amazon is necessarily the best model and the, the the place that people should be going in order to, you know, see the great greatest example of that. So I think they were sort of telling him to get his own house in order really before coming to lecture them. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, truly this whole issue should be humbling everybody to go to a conference and, and sort of feel like you're the star of the show or come on. 
This mm. is a, it's, this is not CES. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, the issue here is, is quite dire. Uh, yeah. And we all play a role and we're all responsible to some extent, some of us more than others. And to your point, I think to come more with a humility to say, I'm going to listen, mm-hmm. I'm going to learn, I have work to do. Yeah. Uh, well, we so appreciate your dedication to covering this. Our soul... <laughs> Correspondent, it's a big undertaking, and uh, but you are more than up for the challenge, and it's just nice to connect with a colleague for around this, and I'm sure that this coverage will continue. Yeah, well, I mean, I I learned so much from from going to COP26, and you know, from listening to all of the people I met there, um, who I found really inspiring, and you know, I did find a lot of hope in there too. So, to anyone you know feeling overwhelmed by this topic. You know, I would say that there is hope, but we all have a responsibility to to care and to try and engage with it in whatever way we can. Um, and yeah, I hope to be able to continue covering it in a way that you know makes it accessible and meaningful to people. Stick with us here at CNET. Uh, Katie Collins, thank you again and hope you have a great rest of your year. Thank you. Thanks again to Katie Collins for joining us. Check out cnet.com slash cost dash of dash climate dash change. I know it's a mouthful. I'll put it on the website as well for all of our coverage on the cost of climate change. And you can go back and listen to our episodes on the cost of climate change. Starting on November 1st of this year, November 1st through 5th, we talked about the new home buyer calculus because of climate change, how big banks are contributing to climate change and how to save sustainably and also how to create a sustainable investment portfolio. You know, impact investing is not just a nice thing to do. It's not just a principled way to invest, but it's also very profitable now if you're interested. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll see you back here on Wednesday. I hope your day is so money. Money.